Hi, welcome to The Cake. We have an extra special episode for you today. It's our first live recording. Thanks to our audience for joining us today on the green at Salisbury District Hospital and, of course, to everyone streaming this episode in their own time. I'm Jane and I'm one of the Divisional Heads of Nursing here at Salisbury. And joining me on the stage today, I'm delighted to introduce Cheryl Samuels, People Director of Evelina London Hospital. (laughs) The Dean of Salisbury, Nick Papadopoulos. And the chair of Salisbury NHS Foundation Trust, Ian Green. But as we all know, we are much more than just our job title. So, Nick, starting with you, what's the one thing that people may not already know about you? It's that I had a short-lived, justly short-lived career as a would-be stand-up comedian. Oh, and that the first time I and my comedy other half appeared on a London stage, we were compared by a bloke called Eddie Izzard. Oh. Little did he know. (laughs) So so you the secret act for the next part of tonight's... Shush. Okay. (laughs) Cheryl, what's one thing we don't already know about you? One thing that probably you don't know is I'm an avid Google reviewer. And I've had 960,000 views of the various things that I've been looked at and reviewed. The 12th Knot is a sort of swanky bar in London. And I've had about 15, 20,000 views of that, both pictures I took on that night alone. Oh, wow. Wow. A hidden talent in photography of bars. (laughs) (laughs) And then Ian... Well, I think the thing that probably people don't know about me is that originally I was going to be in Nick's line of business. So I started training to be a priest in the Church of England, but I decided that was not for me in the end. So that was when I was very young. What made you decide it wasn't for you? Uh, All sorts of things about the church and sexuality was a big stumbling block for me and eventually as a a gay man. So that was uh, the thing that in the end was the nail in the coffin for me. Okay, fab. So let's get into it. Our episode today will be exploring the challenges of providing inclusive public services at a time of social debate and division. Starting with you, Cheryl, would you mind if I ask you um, why is inclusivity important? So I'd say that inclusion is important because people are important and the way in which we actually deliver services, the way we serve our population and the way that we consider the needs of our population means that we actually need to understand what those differences are so that we can cater ourselves towards that. I think failure to do that means that we don't address the needs of the population that we're actually serving. And after all, that's what public services are there to do. So failure to do it means that we're not doing as we should. Is there any other reason why we should be inclusive? I think it's more than just a a moral duty there is a moral duty there's a legal duty and whilst we have the public sector equality duty and we also have the equality act 2010 that sets out the basis on which we should and must make sure that we're actually meeting the needs of um, the populations that we're serving i think that it also means that we also need to be connected in terms of the moral imperative 
because that's really what drives it actually legislation doesn't change behaviors it's actually more about people and how they actually connect with those those issues and recognize how they can start to close the gap to actually serve those people as best they can and after all you know certainly for us in the nhs you know it was set up on the premise that actually it was so that everybody at the point of need any time that they needed it that we were able to to serve them and provide the services that they need and when you're ill that's almost at your lowest point isn't it yeah. so actually even more so you want people who can you know properly actually serve those people properly yeah what does inclusivity mean to you Ian? I, mean, I agree with everything that, that Cheryl says but stepping back a bit further for me it's about fundamental human rights it's a, about treating everybody with respect with dignity treating them as an individual um, acknowledging that we're all different but we're all valid um, in our differences and people have the the right to be treated with respect both human to human but also particularly as we deliver public services to people um, in very diverse communities um, and making sure that particularly in the context of public service, we're really conscious and careful and respectful of those differences, but we're also quite radical in the approach that we want to take to be inclusive organisations. And it's a real, real passion of mine to make sure that this is something that happens naturally, but I also know it doesn't just happen naturally. You've got to have strategies and plans in place to make that happen in a really, really profound way. Yeah. And Nick someone who doesn't currently work in the NHS might be in the future change of career your line of work inclusivity is really important I think I'm leaving it late to have a change of career <laughs> never um, say never <laughs> I, 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 I don't ever um, believe it or not I, I guess the church is probably the oldest longest surviving public service mm. in England indeed in, in Europe you know, scroll back a few hundred years and the ecclesiastical parish was the basic unit of society once you got beyond the family. That was where the parish baptised you as a baby, it married you, it buried you. And if, if you were to come across any health care or any schooling in, in between those, it was probably done through the parish. The church existed to serve all the people of its neighbourhood. And that's actually the only kind of church that I think I'm interested in working for, uh, one that's serious about serving all the people of the place in which it's set. And I hope that's what we aspire to at Salisbury Cathedral. We're with a cathedral for Salisbury, for all of Salisbury and its region. And we do that because um, I think that's what's in, in the DNA of being church, mm. is that you serve the place to which you belong. And if you stop doing that, then you're not a church anymore. You're a sect of some sort. Yeah. So we've mentioned what we, it means to us. And Jeremy, you mentioned some of the legal requirements that organisations we must um, abide to. But we're not always getting it right. So there's still a lot of challenges out there. Can you talk in maybe about some of the challenges you've faced and what you've done to overcome them? 
Gosh, yeah. I mean, I mean, in uh, my my career, my my executive career has has been all in in the charitable sector. So uh, within the YMCA movement, I was uh, the national CEO of the YMCA for a number of years, and then most recently, chief executive of the Terence Higgins Trust, which is a the HIV and sexual health charity. And there were all sorts of opportunities and challenges that I had and those that I worked with had in trying to think through how do we genuinely become an organisation that is passionate about inclusivity, but also really is focused on less of equality but equity. And equity for me actually is a, a word we don't use mm. enough yeah. because of with equality everybody is the same, but we need to acknowledge that people don't start off the same. Yeah. And to get to equity, sometimes you need to say, I'm going to focus or invest in uh, people in, uh, in different ways or uh, to give more resource to a particular community in order to make sure that there is the opportunity for equality. And I've really blown that so many times in, in my career where I've just not been thoughtful enough, not been careful enough. I've made assumptions, I've stereotyped. And I think there's something that I've, I've learned a lot as I've, I've got older um, and developed in my career. But that's okay to make mistakes and to do, to do things that you regret, as long as you're really open to be challenged and to learn and to develop. But yeah, many examples of where I've messed it up. You're not going to ask me, are you? Please don't. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering what, but um, yeah, we might come back to okay. that. And, and, and Cheryl, have you always got it right? What, are you happy to discuss um, when you've not quite hit the mark? I think it's probably a, a slightly different question, probably, mm. for myself as a black woman working in an organisation where quite often I'm usually the minority. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think really being a woman is so much of an issue for me mm. in the NHS, but certainly being a black woman means that actually sometimes advocating and trying to advocate to close the gap on some of the inequalities we see both in the workforce as well as in the healthcare side means that I'm not sure that it's so much about getting it wrong I think it's more about actually how do we ensure our voices are actually heard in equal yeah. measure mm. to everybody else and so I think there's a real challenge there around you know trying to to help people to kind of understand the difference so that we get to equity. You can't, you can't start to think about diversity and then talk about including people and yet you're not actually thinking about what you do differently for different groups. Different people need different things. Um, and I think during the course of the pandemic, I, um, I was the national lead for health and wellbeing. Mm -hmm. And when I started to see the, the volume of death that we saw, and the impact it was having on NHS staff. You know, I was really clear that from a psychological point of view, we wanted to look at providing apps to support staff and using things like Headspace <laughs> and Unmind and all of those sorts of things. But actually, we had so many barriers that kind of prevented us from doing that. But one of the things I was absolutely clear about was that I wanted to make sure it was free of charge to everybody yeah. so that all 1.3 million staff had the opportunity to access those apps. It didn't matter which socioeconomic group you belonged to, it didn't matter whether or not you were black or white, didn't matter whether you were young or old, didn't matter you know, what gender you were, didn't matter whether you had kids or not. It was about actually providing it for everyone. And in the end, we had over 10% of the NHS had taken that up before me leaving post. And that just goes to show 
actually, that when you really concentrate on trying to provide equal access to everybody and recognising their difference at the same time, I think that actually the benefit when I see people who say, child, you know what, actually having headspace just help my kids get to sleep at night. Yeah. It really does make a difference. So for those who are struggling to feel like their voice is being heard, what advice would you give to I'd say there's something about actually trying to find allies in the workplace. Mm -hmm. It's not always easy to find. I think that you have to navigate your way around, start to build relationships with people. You need to properly start to try and understand different people. And I think you'll find people who will have common interests, who will also want to advocate to do the same things. And they'll also be willing to support you and stand up in spaces where actually <coughs> others will be very quick to actually sort of shout you down or silence you. And the other thing probably is also to have some courage, some determination, you know, just remembering sometimes when you're advocating for some of these things, actually some of those things come at a personal cost. I certainly can can see how that, that plays out and have certainly had personal experience of sometimes actually going against the grain is not always what everybody wants to, to hear but you've just got to stick with it if you know it's the right thing to do. And I think that actually those are the common things we see with whistleblowers. So you look at the lady that, that um, whistle blew for mid-staffs, despite everybody that was against her, she knew it was the right thing to do. And I think for me, in terms of looking at racial equity and it intersecting with all the other protected characteristics, it doesn't feel good to me to know that I'm four times more likely to die in childbirth than you are. Yeah. Even breast cancer, you think to yourself, actually, the rate of detection, actually breast cancer shows up earlier in black women than it does in white women. The actual screening for it is actually done when you're in your 50s, but when for black women it shows up in their 40s. There's loads of us that are missed because yeah. of that. So actually, you know, like there's so many things actually we need to kind of make sure that we're advocating, but raising the profile around some of these things, but actually really talking with some of the change makers about how we actually try and make some of these changes. And obviously social media is out there and that would help with getting some of these messages, but it's also has in some cases quite a negative effect. Can do. Have you <laughs> yourself experienced some negative social media? I have to say, I haven't really experienced a huge amount of negativity as a small example when I became people director at the Evelina they announced it on social media and I have to say it was overwhelming just to see the amount of people who were just so delighted that I'd actually got the post but there were a small a very small number of people you know in the public that she were commenting on Twitter and saying well actually were there no white people for this job Gosh. And the fact that people are happy to be the keyboard warriors, spouting homophobic things, racist things, the misogyny is also out there. You just think some of these things are a bit more prevalent in some groups than others. And when you intersect it with race, some of those things are just 10 times worse. I, I'm first sorry, of all, that's no, really shocking. <laughs> but, but really sorry you've had to, yeah, to face sure. that on, on social media. It's, it's really unacceptable isn't it I just I've got lots of trans friends and just to see yeah, um, the pylons that come from trans men and trans women who I know when they're just wanting to live their lives yeah, yeah. Uh, as who they are um, and it 
makes me really angry um, mm. just to see how how a, such a tiny minority being vilif vilified mm. and also being used almost like this this totemic thing that you currently it's it's okay to attack yeah, um, it's fair um, game. trans men and women because of it's mm. almost become like a yeah. political football and yeah. that that is just so unfair and it just is yeah, that's similar. That's similar to what we see in terms yeah. of race. You know, people actually deciding it's all very woke. It's not woke. This is the reality of what's out there. It doesn't affect the majority, but actually, for the people, it does impact. It's really, really painful, and it mm. isn't something that we should all just be standing by. And Nick, what would you say the role of kindness plays in us combating this lack of inclusion? It's fundamental, isn't it? Mm. Um, it's fundamental to the way that we are with one another. I think it means treating everyone with whom we have to do in the same way. Ian spoke earlier about human rights and uh, human dignity. And it's recalling that whoever it is that we're dealing with and whatever the the situation is that we're dealing with them in, it's remembering that they're human. So refusing to deal with people as numbers or as categories or as a collection of characteristics, but as a person, just as I am, you know. Yeah. Um, I think that's what kindness is. So yes, fairness, compassion, forgiveness, all those respect all those qualities are wrapped up in it but if i was looking for one word i think to describe it i'd, I'd go with kind yeah well, my favorite phrase is kindness costs nothing and costs yet nothing it, it, some people it's yeah. uh, really difficult for them yeah. to be kind isn't it so knowing it's still a challenge how do we make decisions about what we need to prioritize to take Nick's point in terms of th th that the attitude I think is really important first of all that you approach it with a, a from a position of, of of kindness and generosity and humility but we do that as leaders and that doesn't mean to be weak actually it means to be really strong I mean kindness is often seen as being like a, a weak yeah. word actually I think it's very powerful yeah so I think we need to to respond in a way that demonstrates really strong powerful effective leadership i think it's also really important as well that you actually look at those areas where there's most disadvantage or where people are really you know that whole equity bit again yeah. um, and it's okay to target it's okay to actually respond in different ways to different communities from that position of kindness and of of respect and decency and also acknowledge that this is about ongoing learning as well that you'll never get everything right you will make mistakes but actually, it's so important to persevere. It's so important just to, to keep at it because that's how you'll get, you'll see transformation. And what would you say should be a priority, Cheryl? I think one of the, the key priorities, I think, needs to be us having a level of honesty about the authentic leadership we want to see. And I think there's something about us actually thinking about the fact that as human beings, we're all flawed and that we do make mistakes but there's also something about having a level of honesty about our own beliefs our attitudes what we think about particular things how inclusive we are to to other people but also just thinking about maybe some of the things that are irritants to us as human beings 
you know, and some of those things can be things like, you know, someone's accent, the way they speak, it might be the way they look, it could be anything. But actually, it's about being conscious of, of what some of those things are. And actually, I think at the point you're more conscious of it, you're more likely to to be able to eradicate the bias or at least to have some way of having some checks and balances in place. So I think there's I think there's something about that honesty and I think there's something about also being vulnerable. Um, and I think the more leaders in particular that we have that are actually willing to be vulnerable, it means that they end up showing more of a human side and I think that's where you get to see the compassionate, the inclusive, the kindness, the thoughtfulness, the consideration, but also that coupled with some cultural humility. I think um, someone pointed out the other day, you know, do we actually expect our staff to be culturally competent, which kind of implies like as if it's a competency you acquire and then all of a sudden you just know what to do. Um, <laughs> and I think it's exactly, <laughs> it's more about cultural humility, which is a continuum. So you're constantly learning all the time. Um, and equally, you know, all of us are in that position where we're constantly learning. So I think that we ought to prioritise those things. Um, and I think we'll start to see the transformation. And knowing that we're human and we sometimes get it wrong and we're constantly yeah. learning. Nick, have you ever had to rethink your approach when you've had to handle making sure you're inclusive? I think that detachment is a really important quality. Um, that which may sound a bit odd, but um, if we're looking at prioritisation, the ability to step back from a situation and... Um, to not be dictated to or caught up in the rush of the moment, you know, the, the hurly-burly, whatever the, you know, whatever, whatever hairs are running, not to run with them, but to have the critical distance to be able to draw breath and refocus on what's, what's core. So when the first national lockdown was declared mm. um, in March 2020, the national church really very quickly announced that all the churches uh, would be closed and that no one uh, would be allowed to go into them. Mm. Um, and I understand why that happened. It was an attempt um, at an inclusiveness of sorts. Clergy, for example, were to be treated just as their parishioners are treated. Church buildings were to be treated as any other public building and were to be closed. In fact, though, I think what we've discovered um, in the years that have elapsed since is that in failing to keep open sacred spaces, spaces of sanctuary, spaces of spiritual refreshment and nourishment, we failed the people who uh, we're here to serve. And I think in that moment when the first lockdown was declared, a little bit more reticence about thinking what's what's important here yeah. as we go into this period of huge um, danger, great unknowing, huge trauma, isn't it actually going to be more important for folk to be able to access the places that are places of communal memory, places of worship, places of transcendence? So I think I think we got that wrong, yeah. and I think a little bit more detachment at the time might have might might have helped. 
it was if was if you like it was a i think a botched attempt at inclusiveness yeah. that's a that's a powerful um analogy and something that's you know i think probably all of us can can resonate to in terms of in hindsight yeah. wouldn't it have been good to do something differently i've got an, an, another very quick example in terms of when you know, I, I i my last executive role was leading a the uk's leading hiv and sexual health charity that was formed from activism and consists still of people passionate people who are all about activism and fighting stigma and discrimination following the murder of George Floyd that some of our black staff came and said actually this isn't a good place for us actually we're feeling not included we're actually feeling othered um, within the context of an organization that was all about inclusion and when we did an independent report to to look at that you know it was it shocked me the yeah. lived experience of some of our black staff and for me as a leader it was then about owning it acknowledging it apologizing but not just apologizing then doing something yeah. about it and making sure that our black staff were really listened to but also i had the responsibility as a leader to to put that right and making sure that as leaders we understand that and we are accountable and we take responsibility is so important so you've just given a really good example of how you've had to change your approach what's the boldest steps you've ever had to take to pursue inclusivity oh, i think it was a response to that that report and, and making uh, and, and actually that required a significant financial commitment from the organization to appoint a, uh, a member on the senior team who was uh, the director of of equity diversity and inclusion to make sure that the that the senior team of the organization reflected the communities that we served that meant that you know we were you know looking to recruit people from racially minoritized communities onto the senior team and onto the board and actually it was about being purposeful it just doesn't happen you've got to take positive action mm. in order to make that work so that for me was the biggest biggest uh, set of, of of response that i had to make i learned so much from that as well and um it humbled me in terms of how i grew and how i changed in response to to those you know awful experiences of people who i i care for mm. and did you have any challenge from other board members on, oh. on that pursuit? uh <laughs> so th th there was a lot of privilege going on around some of the discussions that took place, yeah. um, which which really surprised me. From a lot of the people in the organisation were were, were um, from the LGBT community, lots of of gay men, who were most impacted by by HIV. But actually, I saw some really negative privilege coming out of some of those conversations, and so taking people on that journey with me was was not easy, but ultimately rewarding. Thank you. I think we've got some time for some questions from the audience. So I'm just going to look to see if anyone has got an arm up to ask anything that we've not covered. Hi, I'm Emma. From, I work in the communications team. My question comes from a mum of, as, of two teenage girls who have been through the lockdowns. Their personalities have changed, the way their skills have changed, their skill sets they've developed to cope with the changes that they've been enforced upon them. And I'm wondering how we respond to the younger generations that are coming through, maybe as patients to the hospital or as staff joining, and how are we responding to the um, different needs of diversity for the next generations? We'll start with you, Cheryl. <laughs> um, so I'll pick it up from a workforce point of view. 
a couple of things that kind of spring to mind are the dreaded statutory mandatory training, which everybody's so excited to do. Um, <laughs> I think that there absolutely is work that we need to do to actually kind of make that more accessible stuff that they can just do on the hoof, that they can sit on the bus or on the train on the way into work and they can just sort of complete it. I think there's things that we can do to kind of do some gamification around some of that as well. I think the other is... I'm always um, looking at trusts who are a little bit obsessed sometimes with turnover. I think we just kind of need to accept that people don't necessarily want to be in a job for 30 years. Even, you know, for my generation, my mum was a civil servant and mum had worked for Department of Work and Pensions for, you know, the best part of 30 odd years and then spent 10 years in the Home Office. But every time I said I was going to start a new job, she's like, Cheryl, again? Mm -hmm. I'm like yes, mum, I've found something else that I want to do or I feel that I can be stretched and do something different. And I think there needs to be a bit of acceptance that actually we are going to start to see turnover continue to be at a certain level before and it will be higher than normal. Yeah. Quick one from Stacey. Thank you. Um, I guess I'm interested in understanding, in a world where we've got some really extreme views being espoused by political leaders who have huge influence, how you balance realism with the role of optimism for leaders? And we know that it's really important to be optimistic, um, but equally, you can't just, you know, not acknowledge some of that stuff that's out there. Because as the panel have said a few times, it's what people you know, live and experience and feel every day. Um, so we're just interested in how you get that balance and um, you know, how you would approach those two things, which often feel a bit diametrically opposed. Nick? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> I think. Um, it, it sends me back to core values. I think that uh, there have been so many changes in the last few years in, in the world that we thought we lived in. Um, you know, thinking back to, to the Western-led wars in the Middle East at the beginning of, of the millennium, to the financial crash, to um, Brexit, to the pandemic, um, this extraordinary sequence of historical events where so much has, uh, so much has changed. The upsurge in populism in our continent, the war that seems to be being waged on democracy and on democratic values, you know, across across the globe. And I think as as leaders, none of us can afford to be unaware or careless about any about any of that. We we, we owe it to ourselves and to those for whom we're responsible to be as as well informed um, as we can be about what's what's happening. We have to again and again, I think, look at what it is that in our particular vocation or our particular discipline, what does this demand of us in in these circumstances? You know, what am I the language I would use is what am I called to be? What am I called to say? What am I called to do in this very changed context? And I think that you know, we've talked about it already, but I think that kindness is a large part of it, actually. It's, um, it's to recall those um, basic requirements of humility, civility, 
respect, decency, despite the maelstrom that's blowing around us, how do we continue to treat those for whom we're responsible and with whom we engage as um, flesh and blood, men and women, human beings um, who are deserving and demanding of our time, our sympathy, our empathy, our respect. I think that's how, how I would begin to formulate a response um, to Stacey's question, but it would only be the beginning of a response. Thank you. Peter? Well, I was disappointed, Jane, to not hear a question about favourite cake. Uh, but That's coming that's up. That's a quick good. But in my serious question, I suppose, you touched a little bit on, on brave leadership and, and that vulnerability of a leader. But, of course, we don't exist in isolation. So what are your thoughts about how that vulnerability and that brave leadership may affect our family members or people that we know when we are standing up as leaders and being very brave about who we are and what we do and what we think. Go for it. Shall I, have a go? Um, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a really important point. There's, there's something about being courageous and you know being open and and also challenging as well. When you see somebody not being treated with kindness, what do we do? How do we respond to that? I think it's really important that we appropriately challenge that. So I've had to learn. I'm, I'm very conscious though that that sometimes when we put ourselves into uh, into the firing line that does have an impact upon the people that we love and that who love us and I'm very conscious uh, of, of that in the roles I've I've undertaken and I just think it's about making sure that you know, that you're you're supporting them in doing what you think is right and acknowledging that they might have a different perspective and a different level of tolerance perhaps I have um, and so just making sure that you're sensitive to that and you're being kind to your loved ones. I know that is something I have to do constantly with my husband and perhaps I'm not being as kind as I ought to be all the time. You know he's going to hear this. I know. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so thanks again to everyone for listening at home and our live audience here in the tent. Um, and course a special thank you to our amazing panel um i have just one final question peter are you ready okay i'm gonna ask the panel what is your favorite cake and why starting with you nick well why would it not be chocolate obviously and and, and because i'm rarely allowed it at home <laughs> <laughs> well we've got chocolate cake for Ooh. you in a minute cheryl my favorite cake is definitely lemon drizzle oh <laughs> <laughs> Fan um, favorite lemon drizzle just think it's the best it's it's simple it's easy love the zestiness of it it's some lovely moist cake it's it's just bees knees okay <laughs> and we have that and then ian so i come from a family of master bakers and confectioners both my oh father God, and my no grandfather <laughs> um, and so you cannot beat the classic which is the Victoria sponge. And I can see one sitting in front of me and I'm eager. It's as though I knew. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, everyone, again. So a big thank you to Cheryl and Nick and Ian for being our guests today. Really, really interesting conversation. And yeah, thank you for taking your time out to be with us. Big thank you to our audience for being here and listening. And for those who also ask questions, it's brilliant to have that participation. 
everyone literally got up and was like cake so it was nice that those who've listened to the podcast and always going about what happens to the cakes can see that the cakes get shared with all the staff and in this case all the staff were in the audience so they ate them and fully enjoyed them and gave me some really positive feedback so yeah it was good really good obviously thank you to our amazing listeners i hope you're enjoying our new series and we will have some more episodes very soon right i think it's time that we ate some cake <laughs>